All right. All right. Here's what I want to do in this session. Um, I want to I want to discuss a little bit about how the gospel creates a sending culture in your church. Um, to be honest with you, I think the wrong thing to do at a conference like this one is to leave with uh, sending as yet another to-do thing that you put on a list, another thing that you want to feel guilty about. Here's something else that our church is not doing that well and, and something that we you know, need to get better at. Um, sending, uh, while we, we want the, the sending um, culture to grow, uh, the sending culture is something that, um, that raises up out of something the gospel grows within us. And so it's not that I'm not acknowledging we don't want to leave here with a better ability to send. What we want is a culture where sending becomes natural. Um, to it, where it's just you could no, no, you could no sooner cease sending than you could cease breathing spiritually. It's just part of who you are. I think the gospel creates that kind of culture, and that's a little bit of what I'm going to um, to discuss with you. Um, I'm going to give you some of what we have come to call in our church plumb lines. Um, that is a, a concept I take from a guy named Larry Osborne out on the West Coast, uh, not a Southern Baptist, but a great um, church leader. But you think of a plumb line as something that, uh, that a builder uses to make sure everything lines up. Um, plumb lines are short, pithy phrases that we use around our church, and I repeat ad nauseum, um, just so that, that, that it, people know this is who we are, this is what we're about. And these form the, the core of our ministry. They help give shape to everything that we do. Um, people sometimes ask me what the biggest lesson that I have learned in the um, you know, 10 or, or so years that I've been a pastor, which for many of you is not that long. Um, but one of the things that I will tell them uh, is that I used to think that once I'd said something really good, really well, and once I'd said it you know, powerfully, that at that point, you know, church had gotten it. And uh, that is just, that this is like, I mean, I say it and then I re-say it. I preach the same sermon five times in the course of one year. And on that fifth time, somebody comes to me like, Pastor, that was awesome. And I'm like, I've been saying that all year long. Uh, it's just that, you know, you repeat it. One of the, in fact, here, this is one of our plumb lines. I tell our staff team that when they are sick, when, I, uh, when they are sick of hearing it, well, I mean, let me get this right. I don't say it as much as I should. Um, when I am sick of saying it, that means our staff has usually just heard it. When they are sick of hearing it, that means our congregation has probably heard it for the first time. Um, so these are plumb lines that I repeat over and over and over and over again. What I'm going to do, and this is by the request of Karen, uh, Karen Kevin, and Aaron, um, I'm going to kind of talk at the senior pastor, the visionary level. I'm going to give you a few ideas for implementation, or at least uh, you know explain how we've tried to implement some of these things. But if these intrigue you and you want to know more about the nuts and bolts of how these work out, you might consider attending the uh, workshop later on today that's led by our, our church planning director, Mike McDaniel, who will be getting into even more of the nuts and bolts than I am. So I was told this should be a mixture of kind of vision statements and then a few ideas that go the direction of implementation. And uh, beyond that, then uh, if, you came hope, you know, if you came looking for a, a manual or a playbook, I hope you don't leave too disappointed. Um, before we get into that, let me just give you a few defining moments that have really shaped our church's understanding of, 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 um, of church planning. Um, you know, full disclosure, we were not a church plant. We were a church revitalization. Homestead Heights Baptist Church, 2002, was a plateaued, declining Baptist church. I was convinced that I was called to be a church planter and uh, was actually looking down in the Fort Lauderdale area and God was lining things up, and I was excited about it and was getting some partners together. And when this church in uh, Raleigh-Durham, Homestead Heights Baptist, asked if I would consider being their pastor, it just seemed like a match made in hell um, because everything they were looking for in a pastor I was not and everything I was looking for in a church um, they were not. Uh, but it's just one of those sovereignty of God things where you sense God um, you know, working and 
became very clear that's where I was supposed to be. I kept trying to convince uh, the pastor search team that this was a bad idea, uh, almost like a, like a fleece I kept putting out. I'm like, well, this is what I think we ought to do. Uh, I wasn't even sure if we should do that. I just thought it sounded so audacious they would surely, you know, kill the process and answer the question for me. But they, they kept being like, well, that sounds like a great idea. And, uh, and so, uh, make a long story short, I became pastor there um, in 2002. Uh, God brought a, a number of changes um, in throughout the church, and uh, you, church planting, it, it, it almost kind of died away in my heart for a little while because I was so fixed, fixated on revitalizing this church. Uh, and and uh, it, there was a few defining moments. One was... Um, I was preaching through the book of Acts. Um, this has probably been about 2004 or so. I was preaching through the book of Acts, and I came to Acts chapter 8 where it says that Philip, as a result of him going to Samaria, um, there was much joy in the city as a result of the message he preached and the works that he did. And so I just asked our congregation, I said, is there much joy in the city of Durham as a result of our being here? And uh, we felt like the answer to that was no. Um, the, Acts chapter 9, the next chapter, talks about a disciple by the name of Tabitha, whose nickname was Dorcas, by the way, uh, how she was a disciple who uh, made, uh, made so many things for people around her that, uh, that, that when she died, the community gathered at her bedside and wept. And so I asked the congregation, would the community weep if we were gone? And we knew the answer to that was no. Um, and so we repented as a church and said, somehow we've gotten off. We, we're trying to grow this great big church for the glory of God. Um, but, you know, really, it's like, we're, it's like we're a host culture trying to suck up people out of the community into our church. We're using our community to do this. And as an elder team, we repented and we said, all right, we are going to, we are going to serve and bless this city. And if we have to grow a great big church in the process, then whatever. But that is not going to be our end game. We want to see this church, we want to see this city reached um, in doing that. And, and, and that sounds like a very subtle shift. In fact, you probably couldn't tell it in the day-to-day operations, but it was huge for us. Because it changed an idolatrous goal with a, with a, with a God-glorifying one, and one that our people could get much more around, and one that ultimately planted the DNA of church planting um, within the souls of our people. Um, the reason I, I, I say that is, is because, you know, there's one mission strategy in the New Testament, only one. Um, you you want to condense it all, the book of Acts, into one kind of phrase. It's go to strategic cities and plant churches. You see that in the very first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes. Jesus had told the apostles, you know, after he gave them the Great Commission, he told them, what was his first command? Do nothing. That's right. Wait. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, first thing the Holy Spirit does is he plants a church in Acts 2. After the little initial, you know, Benny Hinn fireworks moment, um, he plants the church in Acts 2. And it says that just the result of the church being the church, when they were all in, you know, together, they were sharing. They're just doing normal church things. That's when God caused a great sense of fear and awe to come upon every soul, and he added to their number daily those that were being saved. So in other words, the church, just being the church, is the greatest evangelistic catalyst for a community. It means that, 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 that not mission trips or, or not evangelistic crusades or not even community ministry projects um, are, are the way you go into a city. You just plant a church there, and the church will do the evangelism projects, and they will do the community ministry that's in there. Well, in order for people to see that, they've got to see our churches doing it. And our people hadn't seen our church doing that. And so um, that 2004, 2005 season was a time where we said, how are we going to bless this? I went and met with the mayor. And I said, you just lay it out. Lay out for me a plan of what is going on in our city and where we can bless this city and what we can do. And uh, he obliged. Well, we met with him several times since then. And he's given us 
you know, updates on, 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 on how we can do things, uh, kind of came to a culmination um, for me about uh, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, um, when our city, Durham, uh, which is technically where our church is, uh, was asked, I was asked to come and speak at the city's annual Martin Luther King rally. Now, I don't know if anything you know about the peace, love, and harmony that is Durham, North Carolina. I uh, think Duke Lacrosse scandal. Uh, but uh, that is the idea of a white evangelical pastor giving the Martin Luther King address um, was just not. I, in fact, as far as I know, I was the first white guy to ever have been asked to give that. It's, a, it's an annual address they do on Martin Luther King Day. It's to the, all the government officials. It's televised. Throughout. It's a big deal in Durham. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm standing backstage. They've given me 20 minutes, and uh, the instructions that have been given to me are, um, she said, you can say anything you want. We just want you to explain why your church does what it does because of all these different places you're ministering in our city. Um, and she said, uh, she said, you can talk about anything you want, just don't be controversial. And I, sa- <laughs> I said, can I talk about Jesus? She said, oh, yeah, he's not controversial. She said, I don't think you know him. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'm standing backstage, and you know, I'm telling you, I, I don't, you know, most of you pastors are like this. I don't get nervous a whole lot public speaking anymore, but I was nervous. Uh, I mean, I was Joel Osteen at an Acts 29 event, nervous. Um, and uh, <coughs> I, uh, I had um, the county manager came up to me, and he, he could tell that I was afraid. And he said, he said, son, he said, Are you, you look terrified. I said, I am, sir. He said, uh, he said you know why you're here. Uh, I said, no, sir, I do not. And I, I really would like somebody to explain to me why I'm about to do this. And he said, and he and a couple other um, officials said, he said, he said, it's because everywhere we look in our city that there is a need. We see somebody from the Summit Church that is there meeting that need. And we couldn't think of anybody that better demonstrated the, the spirit of brotherly love that we want to see um, um, at work in our city than than you and the people of your church. So on their behalf, we're asking you to address us. And so um, I got up there, and I, of course, gave the proper honor to Martin Luther King, but then talked about Jesus for the majority of the time. Um, They gave a standing ovation when it was done, uh, not because of the speech had been that good, but because um, there had been a congregation that had backed that up and blessed um, the city so that the city was recognized. We are not roundly praised in our city. I mean, you just type in Summit Church Durham, and you'll find more hate stuff than you could read in a lifetime. But um, so I'm not trying to say we're, we're uber popular uh, in our city, but there is, there's a begrudging acknowledgement that where there is need, there is the people of God. Um, that was a very important shift for us because, again, while you may not need to be convinced of the need to church plant, your people have to be convinced of the reason. And when they see it as the catalyst, the greatest catalyst for evangelism and for um, blessing and ministry in the community, that's when they get into it. Um, second defining moment for me went right along with that when it was about the same time, and that is I was praying for our city, Raleigh, Durham, that God would send a revival and awakening there like nothing that we had ever seen before, that this would, you know, what happens in Raleigh, Durham would be the kind of thing that people would talk about 100 years from now. And uh, I, I'm not one of those guys that God's always speaking to me in dreams and visions and, you know, writing things in my Cheerios and that kind of stuff, but um, this was one of those moments that God's spirit so very clearly spoke to me. He said, he said, all right. What if I say yes to that prayer? And what if I send an awakening in Raleigh-Durham like nothing you've ever experienced? But what if I don't use your church in it? What if I use another church? Why have you used your buddy's church down the street? What if I use their church to do it? And they are the ones that get invited to the conference, and they're the ones that are spoken about, and nobody ever knows who you are. Do you still want it? I'd love to tell you that, that I said, yes, Jesus, anything. But I, I didn't because I knew, I knew in my, I couldn't be honest with that, I, that I knew that somehow thy kingdom come and my kingdom come 
had essentially become the same thing to me. And, um, and that led to a time of repentance for me, one that I, I'm, I'm, I continue to stay in. Um, but it was, it, was, it was very, very important for us in developing the sending culture because there is an inherent kingdom-mindedness in sending. Um, sending, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I mean, you might get asked to give testimonies at various places. Sending will never get you the honor and prestige that having a large church will. Just that the way our world works, and we can decry it all we want, but if you've got a big church and a big budget and big facilities, that, that's who gets the attention. So there has to be an understanding that this is ultimately not about self-kingdom. This is about God's kingdom. And for me, that was a huge defining point because it shifted away from, all right, how am I growing a great church to how am I growing a sending church? Um, the last uh, kind of defining moment, and this is one that's, that's just unique to our church. I actually shared this one with you. Um, this is because I don't want you to be deceived at the reason that we've been able to do some of the things that we do. We have a particular makeup in our church that not all of you are going to have. And I think one of the things is not to try to emulate what we're doing because you don't have the same cards in your hand that, you, that, 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 that we do, but it's to figure out what cards are in your hand and how you can be involved in it. Um, so this third defining moment for us was when college students discovered our church. Um, it, you know, college students travel in herds. Uh, there was like one, two, then like 500. Within three weeks, our attendance doubled. Um, and our budget did not go up a dime uh, during those three weeks. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite memories as a pastor was in between two of the services, one of the ushers brought me an offering plate, and in it was a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from a college student. Um, a little note on it that said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto you. Uh, so um, at that point, we knew that this was not going to be a financial um, thing for us, but uh, we do have a lot of church planters, potential church planters. And uh, we teach all of them that unless they've heard from God audibly by the time they graduate, they need to plan on spending two years um, overseas on one of our church plant locations. Uh, we call that the Mormonization strategy uh, for the Summit Church, by the way. Um, but it really seems to have caught on. You know, in the last, um, we have a, a church planning residency um, that, that is designed to raise up church leaders. Uh, but in the last 19 months, I think, uh, we've sent out five churches from our church, and each of them has included between 20 and 30 regular people who have uprooted their lives and gone to that location to plant and to live there. Um, we have a lot of people, not all of them are college students, but a, a majority of them have been young professionals and college students. What we tell them is, you know, you got to get a job somewhere. Why not get a job where God is doing something? Why not plant your life in a place where the kingdom of God is at work? And why not, not, why not let that be the core of where you live and let God provide the job for you? you know, we almost think of it like tithing your career. Um, give God that first part. Give him the first shot and see if he plants your life in a place where the kingdom of God is doing something um, that is very strategic. This past May, we had another 100 college seniors commit uh, to do that for their next two years. Um, so we've got 100 more that we're looking for placement now. Some of these are going to be overseas, but a lot of them are going to be in places like Baltimore, which is the next place we're looking at planting, um, and places where we can just say, hey, you, you got a skill. Um, do what you do well to the glory of God. Do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Uh, that's kind of the phrase we, we, we give to them. I'll come back to that one here in a minute. But all right, so with all that said, those are the defining moments. Let me give you now these plumb lines um, and, and give you a little bit of the basis behind them. And uh, we'll try to move through this, um, hopefully not too rapidly, but certainly concisely. Um, everyone is called. Everyone is called. I believe that one of the most overlooked resources in the church is the average church member. If you study the book of Acts, you're going to see a very subtle but very stubborn theme. And that is that the spread of the gospel through lay people outpaces its spread through the apostles. 
You ever notice in Acts that some of the most significant events, like the conversion of Paul, happened through lay people? The gospel gets into most cities in the book of Acts through lay people. In fact, there's almost a scandalous thing, if you ever notice this. God gives the Great Commission to the, to the apostles. You know, in chapter 8, you know, they're supposed to have gone to all the world preaching the gospel. They're still in Jerusalem. And so God sends a persecution on the church, and it, 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 this is what Acts 8.1 says. And after God sent the persecution, they went everywhere preaching the word. You ever see the next phrase? Comma, except the apostles. The apostles all stay in Jerusalem. Now, you can interpret that however you want to, but the bottom line is the gospel is first going out of Jerusalem through the hands of lay people, regular people who are carrying the gospel with them. One of the most inspiring scenes to me in the book of Acts is Acts 28, 15. You know, Paul you know, has been dead set on taking Christ where he's never been named. Right? You know, I've got to take the gospel where you've got to take Jesus where nobody knows him. So he sets his sights on Rome, the capital of the world. And it says when he finally gets to Rome... The capital of the world, he is greeted, Acts 28, 15, by the brothers who had gotten there before him. That the gospel travels in the book of Acts more significantly on the wings of business than it does even through the hands of the apostles. Stephen Neal wrote a book called The History of Christian Missions in which he says this, and I have that quote there for you on your handout. But in point of fact, few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by apostles. Nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneers who laid the foundation. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome, but they certainly did not found it. Neil goes on to explain that not one of the major Christian centers, Antioch, Alexandria, or Rome, not one of them was founded by an apostle. Now, this is not to take away from the apostolic or church leadership role. Simply to say that the greatest evangelistic tool of the church are the members of the church asking how their lives ought to be leveraged to serve the interests of the Great Commission. And I think that we have limited calling to a sacred privilege for a select few. But the Great Commission was not given to a select few. It was given to the church, and every believer has to reckon with their part in it. Luke chapter 14, Jesus talking about discipleship, something that I, at least I, I've never heard you know, applied a lot. He said, he said, your life is like a party. If your life was a party, who would the guests be that were invited to your party? So if you think of your talents and your gifts as a party, who are you throwing the party for? Is it for people that can pay you back by inviting you to their party, or are you throwing it for people that can't pay you back? I think every disciple of Jesus has to ask the business skill that I have, the educational abilities I have. How, where am I throwing this for the kingdom of God? Who, who am I throwing this party for? I don't think that's something a handful of seminary students have to answer. I think it's somebody every, everybody has to answer. In fact, sometimes I feel like we've invented the whole language of calling just to mask the fact that two-thirds of the people in our church aren't really living as disciples of Jesus. The call to make disciples, the call to leverage your life for the kingdom of God is, that's in the call to follow Jesus. That's not like a 2.0 call, that's 1.0. And so one of the things we, we just put out there is, how is your, uh, we're not saying God wants you to walk away. In fact, one of our church planners got up the other day and, and told everybody that, that some of them needed to walk away from their career. And, you know, come plant a church with them. And I want to smack him. I was like, they don't, a lot of them don't need to walk away from their career. They just need to take their career. And they need to plant their career somewhere where they can be used strategically. Here's, again, the phrase. I, I said it a minute ago. Do what you do well for the glory of God. Do it somewhere strategic for the king, kingdom of God. Whatever you do, whatever God made you, what, whatever skill he gave you. It, it may not be preaching. There's only a few people that God gives to be leaders of the church. Whatever you do well, do it for the glory of God. Do it somewhere strategic for the kingdom of God. 
Again, we tell college graduates, you got to get a job somewhere, why not do it where we're planting a church? We asked them during their college career to give two months, two months to us, one summer, and we have several mission projects around the, the nation and around the world, and then uh, two months within two years. This summer, we have 300 of our college students that are serving on one of these mission projects for two months, and that becomes the, the fodder that will call them out for this two-year commitment we're asking them to make. Um, we communicate this to our high school students when they graduate. When you go off to college, all right, get, do your internships, work, you know, mom, dad, make you work, but give us one summer. One summer is what we need because then we can put this vision of church planting within you and, and, and to make strategic decisions. All right, so number one, everybody's called. Number two, the church is not a group of people gathered around a leader. The church is a leadership factory. Church is not a group of people gathered around a leader. It's a leadership factory. John 14, 12, Jesus said, truly remarkably, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I'm doing, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. On the surface, isn't that an absurd statement? I mean, really? Greater works? Anybody here done greater works than Jesus? Anybody raise the dead, walk on water, feed 5,000? Anybody pray with perfect clarity in the mind of God, know exactly what he wants in a situation, be able to speak prophetically and know exactly what's going on in somebody's life, teach theology with unbelievable acumen, quote all the parts of the Old Testament, explain how they relate to it? Anybody? Anybody do anything that ever would be comparable to the ministry that Jesus had? Of course not. So, I mean, you know, Bible scholars conclude that greater there cannot be greater in terms of the quality of our ministry. It has to refer to what happens when Jesus comes upon the entire church and it's greater in extent. And what he is saying is that, and this is, again, still an unbelievable statement to me, that the, 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 the Holy Spirit working through normal people, the collective impact of that is greater than if Jesus himself was the pastor of the church. I mean, how awesome would that be if Jesus could join up your church staff? And it wasn't a joke. Hey, Jesus is coming to be your youth pastor, right? I mean, awesome. But he said that if you understood who the Holy Spirit was and the capabilities, that you would not want that if it meant that the Holy Spirit would not be at work through your people. Because the collective impact of the people of God is greater than a few anointed individuals. Well, how we've built our churches turns that on its head. We have a group of people who admire one leader. As if Jesus meant, okay, I'm going to go, but I'm going to put my spirit on a handful of mega pastors. And then everybody's going to gather around them and just be awed by their gifts. <laughs> that is not That is not biblical. Uh, you know, Jesus, here's another. I, I love these unbelievable statements he makes. Um, again, you just got it. Jesus was not one to exaggerate or, or speak rhetorically. He said John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, right? John the Baptist was great. Never has a prophet been born among women that's greater than John the Baptist. Yet I tell you that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than, than, than John the Baptist. What I love about that is somewhere in Jesus' mind, there's somebody who is the least in the kingdom of God. They have the least talent, least ability, least promise. Maybe they're right here in this room. I don't know, okay? But they, they, you are the bottom of the pile. And Jesus said, because of the Holy Spirit's presence in you, the power is greater than if you were the greatest prophet of all time, John the Baptist. That is an awareness that we theologically live with that ought to form how we are structuring the church. Certainly what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 when he says that God gave pastors for the work of equipping the, the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, what I say to our, our congregation on this is, um, according to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, when I became a pastor, I left the ministry. Because the ministry is done by the saints in the community, my role is in the church, and I am the equipper. 
Now, here's an interesting uh, trivia thing. There are 40 miracles in the book of Acts. 40, 39 of them happen outside of the church. 39 out of 40 happen outside the church. You ask most churches where they've experienced miracles, and it always has to do with a capital campaign. I mean, praise God for the capital campaign, but that's not where God wants to manifest his power. The, the manifestation of the power happens in the community. Again, that's that subtle theme that you see throughout the book of Acts. Is that God is taking regular people like Stephen and using testimonies to convert the apostle Paul. And he's getting the gospel everywhere through them. Based upon that verse, I would say that we have to judge the effectiveness of our church by how many people we're raising up in the ministry. Churches, you see, can be successful without being effective. Let me, let me say it again. Churches can be successful without being effective. You take a piece of dynamite, you launch it 200 feet up into the air, and it goes off. That's successful. It did exactly what it was designed to do. It made a big bang. A lot of people from around may actually come and ask what just happened. But five minutes later, there is no evidence, no effect of that piece of dynamite going off. Now you bury that dynamite in the piece of, or you bury that piece of dynamite into a mountain and have it go off. The bang might not be as loud, but you're going to have a way open that wasn't there before. Churches can be successful in growing large audiences, but that doesn't mean they're effective for the Great Commission. If you're going to be effective for the Great Commission, it has to do with not seating capacity, but sending capacity. The success of a church might be judged by its weekly attendance, but effectiveness for the Great Commission is not determined by seating capacity, but sending capacity. So if we are going to be effective for the Great Commission, we have to be skilled at raising up leaders. Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, which I would assume a number of you have read, talks about the difference in a good leader and a great leader. A good leader is, he said, a genius with a thousand helpers. A guy with just unbelievable um, vision and clarity, and he gets a thousand people around him to, to do his, or minions, to do his bidding. Um, he says that's a good leader, but a great leader, he said, is one who got, gets other geniuses around him of equal or greater value because he sees himself as a servant. Um, Jack Welch, he, he, he points to him as an example. At some point um, in, in Jack Welch's career, an unbelievably high percentage of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies had all worked for Jack Welch. He said the reason for that was because he knew how to raise up leaders. And so while their goals are different than ours, he had an unbelievable influence on American business by his ability to spot, to put into place, and to raise up these guys who would ultimately in many ways surpass him. The greatest pastors are those who commit themselves to raising others up. Right? And for you reform people that are offended that I just cited a business book, John Calvin said, the more one is committed to upbuilding, the more highly he is to be regarded. All right? So, uh... When John Calvin and Jim Collins agree on anything, it's settled in heaven, all right? So we have to be skilled at raising them up. we got to be committed to giving them away. Gentlemen, ladies, we, we want to hold on to our leaders, don't we? Oh, man, after I've invested in you. But the nature of the Great Commission is sending, which means you're going to have to be committed to giving away your best, to hiring people you know that you might and probably will lose. For what it's worth, here's a little, another plumb line for us. It's not one of the ones on your sheet, but we say, Pushing out leaders creates more leaders. Man, I have to beat this into our, our staff and remind myself uh, continually. Because you're like, I'm giving away my leader. I mean, well, what's, what's going to happen? This leader is leaving. Pushing out leaders, we found, creates more leaders. There are two reasons for that. I think one of them is natural and one of them is supernatural. The natural reason is that leaders are attracted to places where they see they can grow to their potential. Where they see themselves as cogs in our machines, they stay away. 
But when they see that you are willing to equip them and send them, it creates an attractive culture for them. Again, you can take this one to the bank. All those leaders of Jack Welch's and the Fortune 500 companies came from his organization. And one of the reasons they were attracted to his organization was because they saw that he was committed to their potential, not just his purposes. That's the natural reason. The supernatural reason is it's just the way the kingdom of God works. God multiplies things when you give them away. It's like money. When you teach your people that, right? Give away your money, God multiplies it. Um, in the same way, you give away your leaders. For every one leader we give away, God raises up three in its place because it's the principle of the five loaves and two fish all over. You will face this crisis of faith every single time you start getting ready to give away a leader, and you've got to remind yourself, this is it. This is raising them up and sending them out, and God will make up the difference. So if we're going to be effective with the Great Commission, we've got to be skilled at raising up leaders and giving them away. Um, man, especially pastors, if we were honest, many times we are more concerned with volunteers than leaders. Volunteers make our machine work. The arena for the development of leaders is in the community outside of the church, and quite often you lose those leaders. So, man, it's a good gut check question. Are you trying to raise up volunteers? Are you trying to raise up leaders? Before I move on to our, our next one here, let me give you a very practical tool or schema that's helped us with this. I'm do this really quickly. Um, we've learned to talk about ministries in our church in one of three categories. Um, we call them um, own, catalyze, and bless. Um, own is the traditional um, kind of relationship of a church to a ministry. It's my idea, the church staff's idea. I come up with the idea. I get volunteers. I draft leaders. I'm responsible for it. I funded everything. Um, that's, would say, the traditional. On the other end of the spectrum is what we would call bless, and that's when a member has an idea that, you know, they come up to you after church, they're like, hey, pastor, I want to give a number two pencil to everybody in my school that says Jesus loves you. And you're like, that sounds like a great idea. Let's have a word of prayer about it, and then talk to me again about a year and a half and tell me how that went. Um, that's bless. That's the other end. Um, some churches have gotten at least aware of the bless factor. There's this middle factor that's the most difficult one of all, and that's what we call catalyze. And that is where I'm not owning it, you own it, but I'm also not just blessing it. I'm trying to figure out how the church can come behind your idea, can empower you, how I can resource you, how, how I can create relationships for you, how I can connect you. How can we be your servant in that ministry to make it much better than it would have been had you just been doing this on your own? The servant role that we take with the people. Um, that's really taken off and multiplied. It's made us lose control. And there's some stuff going on that, you know, I mean, I'm like, if I were in charge of that, I probably wouldn't do it that way. But it's, it's that John 14, 12 principle that we are the servants of the people. By the way, you know, for what it's worth, I'm not been asked to address NAM or the IMB, but I think that that relationship to churches is what's going to be the future of our convention. Is when they say it's not you're going to be cogs in our machine for the initiatives we have. It's a how can we take this thing that God has given us and leverage it for your purposes. Now, what if Nam is not saying, how do we plant churches? What if Nam is saying, how do we help you plant churches? Because churches plant churches, and the servant, um, and, and I don't say this because I feel like I have to do it as a pastor. How do I serve my people in, in, in empowering and enabling them to do that? Um, we say the best ministry ideas are in the congregation. Um, so here's your question. Do you have a clear process for raising up leaders in your church, helping them generate ideas, catalyzing them, developing them through training? The leadership pipeline is different than the discipleship pipeline. Uh, if, you're a, if you're kind of a nerd, write down the name Ram Sharan, C-H-R-A-A-N, who wrote a book called Leadership Pipeline, in which he explains that there are different ways that people grow 
And to grow as a leader, you grow in a zigzag pattern. I don't have time to unpack that, but it'd be worth your read to to contemplate how you can develop that kind of, of pattern in your church. Number three, the week is more important than the weekend. The week is more important than the weekend. This is a direct challenge to the megachurch culture. If the objective is gathering an audience, then the weekend is most important. If the objective is making disciples, then the week is most important. This is not to take away from the incredible importance of weekend ministry. That's where God's people come together and the word of God is preached. It's just that the power of God must go out from there into the community. Let me tell you why I think this is increasingly important in the places where you and I are ministering. Um, Especially if you're in the Northeast or if you're in... Um, the New South, you know what they call that? A guy named Steve Temis, who lives over in, in uh, London. You know, in many ways, uh, Europe uh, is 30 years, I don't say this sensitively, um, farther down than we are. You know, just as far as the, you know, where things are headed, the, the post-Christian um, culture. And he says, uh, Steve Temis in his, uh, what book is this from? Everyday Church, says that 70% of people in Great Britain say they have no intention of ever attending a church service. That's not true in the United States yet, but we're headed there. And he says, quote, that means that new styles of worship will not reach them. Fresh expressions of church will not reach them. Alpha and Christianity Explorer courses will not reach them. Guest services will not reach them. Churches meeting in pubs will not reach them. The vast majority of unchurched and dechurched people would not turn to the church even if faced with difficult personal circumstances or in the event of national tragedies. It's not a question of improving the product of church meetings and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events. That is going to be as people are empowered and and are enabled to be able to take the gospel there, which leads me to number four. We got to get good at making disciples again. We just got to get good, bottom line, at making disciples again. We have lost our ability as Southern Baptists to make disciples. Man, we used to be so good at it. Now, if it weren't for our kids, we wouldn't have a future. And, and thank God for churches that disciple other children. I mean, that's like, you know, priority one. All right? But is your church effective at teaching people to reach others? I reread Dawson Trotman's Born to Reproduce and just wrecked me again. He's like, this is what the mark of a mature Christian is. He reproduces himself. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you, as a church, we're, we're not, I don't feel like we're that good at it. We're pursuing it hard, but we're not that good at it. Right, so don't just take a trip down to our church and feel like it's going to be like, oh, they got it all perfect. I, in fact, in some ways, I kind of feel like the Wizard of Oz scene where you got the big voice. You pull back the curtain, that's a little old man back there. Uh, that's kind of how I feel. It's like I can do the big voice thing, but um, we're, 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 we're pursuing it hard. Our college department's good at it. In fact, we just sent a team to Malaysia um, last year of eight gra- college graduates, college seniors who gra- you know, graduated and are living in Malaysia together right now on a church planning team, seven of whom became Christians at our church during college. So in the four years they were there, they, they, they came to Christ, they were discipled, and they, they were ultimately sent out on mission. So I feel like they're getting it, but we're taking some steps as a church. We're developing you know, kind of mentorship uh, manuals, one, equipping small group leaders and people to make disciples. My concern is that a lot of times we're sending out people to plant churches who only know how to gather other groups of Christians. If the pastor doesn't know how to make disciples, the church won't either. Churches will never do on a large scale what pastors are not good at doing on a small scale. I tell you, my favorite pastors to listen to, preachers, are not necessarily the guys who are just great expositors. I like to listen to guys that I can tell are discipling their whole congregation while they preach. They're not just into the, I'm a text guy, okay, so don't hear that, expository, I'm into the text. But you can hear in certain guys, I'm not just finding my joy in this text, I'm finding my joy in how this text is moving you from point A to point B. And you can tell those guys are disciplers. 
Um, Here's the question. Are you and your pastoral team members and your leaders and your church members effective at making disciples on a personal level? If not, and I say this gently, maybe you should stop thinking about planting churches and focus on that. Because until you do that, you probably shouldn't plant a church. And after you do that, planting churches will come naturally. All right? All right, number five. Every pastor is our missions pastor. Every pastor is our missions pastor. This is a phrase we use to emphasize that missions and planning and sending are not special departments in the church. We want everything we do to have the aroma of the Great Commission. Every department in our church is involved in sending. Every pastor is a mission pastor. I'll give you a few examples. I try to work missions and church planning into every sermon. That should not be hard, by the way. You know, C.J.H. Wright, who wrote a book called The Mission of God, which I don't totally agree with everything, but um, in it he makes the point that the Bible is a book that arises out of a mission. He said the whole book, every story, is about how God is pursuing his mission, which means if you preach any text without being able to talk about the mission of God in it, you've preached it the wrong way. So in every, in every single message, you're looking for how does this affect God's global mission, both locally and, and, and globally. We structure our service so that the theme of sending is layered all throughout it. It's not just the Lottie Moon Mission Sermon Series once a year. I, I, I want people to step on our church campus to just, it just it, it's like infecting. It's just like I, I couldn't walk through the parking lot without getting infected with this sending idea. Um, you know, some of the ways we do that, we commission all the time. I know many of you do that too, but we, anytime we have a chance to put somebody up in front, and just tell them, you know, this is what's happening and celebrate that going out. You know, you replicate what you celebrate. Um, we do a thing at the end called Missional Blessing, taking a cue out of the, uh, um, the Book of Common Prayer, which I'm not that guy. But um, I just thought I love the way that at the end of the service they, they sent. I'm like, who, who would have thought the Anglicans would have that in their, in their thing? So I was like, okay, we're like, oh, you're dismissed. See you next week, you know. Um, so we've started to, at the very end, the last thing is there is a blessing that is given to the people as they are sent out. Sometimes we, we, we will record um, church planners overseas and have them do the missional blessing. So they'll see what the video will come on. The guy will be up there and be like, hey, I'm so-and-so. I live in this part of Central Asia. I'm over here to live out the gospel. You are right there in Raleigh-Durham, and you are no less sent. And you are now sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit and in his promise to be able to go and make disciples. So instead of saying you're dismissed, we say you are sent. By the way, that's also from Luke 24, the last thing that Jesus, people, scholars think that Luke 24, Jesus is showing us how to do a worship service because you got the explaining of the word, you got the breaking of bread. When, what's the last thing he does? He commissions them, he, he sends them out in the Holy Spirit. And so that ought to be the last thing that we do in our church services as well. Um, we uh, Offerings, you know, using that as a chance to explain the mission, communion. Um, we will a lot of times explain, you know, Jesus is outside the camp. This is not only the, the sign of our salvation, it's the sign of our mission. Um, we, will, we will film uh, uh, church planners doing communion. We will ask them to lead communion. And just, to, just any chance we have to, to remind people this is all about mission. Uh, let's see. Um, keep going here. Baptism. Uh, we'll film baptisms from our church plants and start off our baptisms in service with one of those. Let me talk about adding a level of excitement into your baptisms. You suddenly show one from a place that you've, you know, overseas or, or locally that you've got a church planted. Um, constantly telling stories, showing videos, etc. In the same way, all of our ministries are involved in the mission, not just our missions department. Our small groups are required to adopt a missionary. Um, that they, you know, dialogue with. Um, many of them, it's been exciting to watch. They organize their own small group trip, 
and go themselves to go you know, visit this missionary. They take care of them. We usually have four or five small groups per missionary that goes out from our church. Um, each small group is required to be involved in a, in a, in a long-term city project. Uh, when I say required, I am fully aware that the church is a volunteer organization, so I use that word required differently than the United States government does it. Um, I say required. I have no idea. Well, I do have an idea. Uh, it's like you know, 60 to 70% of our small groups actually do it. 30% are lame, and I just tell them that. Um, but uh, every ministry pa- – oh, here, we try to inculcate the DNA of planting and sending into our small groups. We quit splitting small groups. Um, because it just never worked. But what we do, and this is really taken off, is we're like, okay, just run a magnet to the sand and find out the leaders that God is raising up in your small group and plant a small group in the same way that we would plant a church. Send that person out. And just, just that common language enables them to understand the church planting mission a lot better because it's layered all throughout there. Um, even our first impressions. Uh, we'll go through seasons where the only coffee we'll, we'll serve is from a part of the world where we have a, a, have a church plant. Um, by the way, if you have any doubt of the value of short-term trips um, on this, because I read all kinds of articles, people saying there are no value. Anybody that says that, this is harsh. Anybody that actually says that, I don't think has ever led people. Um, because what I find, what we found is for every person we send out on a short-term trip, it's not like we're, we're in a limited number of resources. We multiply the amount of money that it costs to go on that trip and what they start giving back. Our Lottie Moon giving offering shot up the first time we took a huge mission trip that involved dozens of people. And, man, that, we blew it out of the water um, at the end of that year because people had seen it. Um, we do our missions giving. Our, uh, the structure of our uh, – we give away uh, over the course of a year is about 20% of our, our budget goes into, into – we give it away into something. We have A, B, and C projects. C is when we just feel good about something and we like the people and we just want to bless them. Um, B or let me, A, A is when um, they can actually host some of our people, and we're thinking long-term work there. And the reason is not selfish or territorial why we prioritize A. It's just that I know that for every dollar I spend in A, I can make it back up. And for dollars I spend in C, I likely will not. Because I'm just giving away money, and that's not creating, in, it's not giving people the exposure to the project that ends up making them give a lot more. So we give a lot to, to the C-level projects, but even more to the A, because I know that A is a good return on investment for us. I'd love to press in more, but we've got to hit the last one here. Um, six, the gospel is not just the diving board. It is the pool. Um, the phrase means that most evangelicals see the gospel as merely the entry right, but it's also the pool. As we grow in our awe and worship of God, who God is and what he's done for us at the cross, we begin to serve God naturally. Fervency and effectiveness in mission are the byproducts of saturation in the gospel. Um, you know this, right? I mean, ultimately, vision, passion and effectiveness for anything is driven by vision. One of my favorite vision statements, um, French, the uh, French guy, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He said, this is my paraphrase. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. As people yearn for the salvation of the world, they will not only put up with the changes you propose, they'll probably instigate a few of their own as well. When the vision is in place, change becomes easier. Um, last story, and I'll be done. Um, when we were going through all this revitalization at our church, um, one of the guys, um, an older kind of a patriarch of Homestead Heights Baptist Church, come up, came up to me. We had just baptized first black guy in our church that the church, I think, had ever baptized. And God gave an unbelievable testimony, man. He stood up there. He wept in the baptismal. He said, my friends, all tell me why I come to some white church. He said, it ain't no white church. It's where I found Jesus. And, uh, and people were, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was so moving. 
And uh, this older man comes up to me after this is over. He said, son, he said, you know I don't like these changes you're making around our church. I said, yes, sir. I said, I, I know that. He said, and he got all choked up. And he said, but if that's what we get right there, you can count me in on every single one of them. Right? What had changed was not his comfort level. What had changed was his passion. The gospel is what creates that passion, which creates the capital for change. So men, preach the gospel. Preach how far Christ had to go to save you, how uncomfortable he made himself, how he sent, how God had one son and he sent him to the world, that he left everything from his kingdom to go into that one. Preach that one until it's so real and rife in the people's heart that they could not imagine following Jesus and not being involved in sending. It is the gospel. Or like a friend of mine says, the fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. The fire to do comes from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. All right, I've used up all of our time. I am so sorry about that. Uh, I probably am scared of questions, and I don't like people to refute and, and contradict me. So we're just going to take this as the sovereignty of God. Um, I'm really sorry about that. Thank you, guys. God bless you. You are dismissed.